Chapter 1. Orthodoxy. Setting the Record Straight. The Reduction of Christianity is a response particularly to two books written by cult watcher Dave Hunt, The Seduction of Christianity and Beyond Seduction. Mr. Hunt, moreover, has joined by David Wilkerson, Hal Lindsey, Jimmy Swaggart, and a growing list of others in a struggle against what they perceive to be dangerous and even heretical tendencies in modern churches. As we explain more fully throughout this book, they believe, for example, that Christians who support social and political involvement with any chance of long-term success are leading people astray. Dave Hunt does make passing reference to the Christian's responsibility to be involved in what are typically described as social issues. But in all of his writings and in the writings of those who support his theological position of impending eschatological disaster, there is the denial that any of these activities can ever be successful. In effect, Christians are wasting their time trying to fix what can never be fixed this side of heaven. More particularly, we wish to respond to Mr. Hunt's implication that those who teach that Christianity will be victorious in history and on earth before the rapture are on the verge of apostasy. With this, we enter the area of eschatology, the study of last things, while the church has always believed that Jesus will come again to judge both the quick and the dead. Mr. Hunt and others tend to make a specific eschatological position a test of orthodoxy. In addition, there is the implied association of Christian reconstruction and various strains of dominion theology with the atheistic views of the New Age movement. As we will demonstrate, this accusation is clearly false and borders on the absurd. As we will show in this chapter and subsequent chapters, Christian Reconstructionists have led the way in fighting against secular humanism and New Age humanism. The writings of Christian Reconstructionists give clear indication that they have had a real understanding of these movements long before they became an issue in the broader Christian community. This is why we are shocked to read in books and periodicals that somehow Christian Reconstructionists are being seduced by the stupidity and silliness of the New Age movement. Moreover, we will address a subtle current in the writings and interviews of those who criticize the theology of Christian Reconstructionists. With the radical division these men make between the Old and New Testaments, law and grace, and Israel and the church, there is no objective ethical standard that the world can use to make societal transformation possible. They believe something like the following. While there is a personal ethic for the Christian, there is no universal ethical standard for the nations. While a Christian can run for political office, he cannot, for example, bring his political views regarding civil affairs with him into the law-making process. The law was for Israel. There is no longer a universal biblical law that applies to Christians and non-Christians. For Christians, the law has been internalized. We will spend considerable time refuting this viewpoint. Finally, this book is not a defense of all those who call themselves Christian Reconstructionist. There are many people who claim the name but know very little about its theological characteristics. Neither do we defend all advocates of Dominion theology, since many wear the label without understanding its distinctives as they relate to Christian Reconstruction. The Goals The reduction of Christianity is also designed to accomplish several other things. First, we want to show the importance of creeds and their usefulness in disagreements over doctrinal positions. Second, we want to set the record straight by defining terms. What do Christian Reconstructionists really believe? Third, 
we clearly show that Christian Reconstructionists have always distanced themselves from the distinctives of New Age humanism and all movements that teach any degree of human autonomy, that is, that man is a law unto himself, independent from the rule of God in his life. This is so clear in the writings of prominent Reconstructionists that it hardly needs to be mentioned in another book, but mention it we will. Fourth, we hope to show that the eschatological view of postmillennialism held by most Christian Reconstructionists is in the theological mainstream and has been for centuries. A study of church history will make this crystal clear. Christian Reconstructionists are not teaching a new view as some might suppose. Fifth, while we differ with a number of Christians on various theological issues, we have not designed this book to be an attack on any man's relationship with Jesus Christ. This is an intramural debate, a dispute within the household of faith. Galatians 6.10 This will be hard for some people to see because there are a good number of references to the critics of Christian Reconstruction. Since Dave Hunt's books have precipitated the reduction of Christianity, some will see our critique as being directed at him personally. This is not our intent, and we believe that a careful reading of this book will show that we have done our best to separate the man from his message. Creeds and the Unity of the Church The Church has been marked by division since its inception. The Apostle Paul writes that there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you, 1 Corinthians 11:19. The purpose of these debates is to sort out what we believe and then assess whether these beliefs are in accord with the Bible. Again, these debates are not new to the church. The church has been fighting theological battles for centuries. But how did the early church go about solving its serious theological differences? We can learn a lot from earlier attempts to unify the church under the banner of the truth of God's word. In the midst of mounting secularism and odd religious sects, Mr. Hunt has issued a courageous call for a much-needed return to biblical Christianity. Most of what he says is very accurate and needed to be said. He has recognized the seemingly heretical implications of statements made by some recognized charismatic leaders and non-charismatic self-esteem advocates, and his description of biblical Christianity is generally accurate. Mr. Hunt's books, however, raise an important series of questions. What are the central doctrines of biblical Christianity? How do we know what those doctrines are? How do we decide who is within the church and who is outside? Where do we draw the lines? Who decides? Can individual Christian writers declare other Christians to be heretical? If so, on what basis? Mr. Hunt's books thus raise the broader issue of Christian unity. On what basis are Christians united with one another? Should we be striving for greater unity? Or is unity something that will be achieved only in the millennium? The Reality of Unity We could describe the unity of the church from several different perspectives. Ultimately, we are united with one another because all of us who are Christ are united to Christ, and Christ is not divided. 1 Corinthians 1.13 Christians are also united sacramentally because we all participate in the one baptism, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and we all eat of the one loaf, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, and drink of the same spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Thus, there are several senses in which all Christians are already united with one another. Most Christians, however, see unity in terms of doctrinal beliefs. Those who hold the same beliefs are unified. This is the basis of denominationalism. 
Denominations often start over a disagreement on one doctrinal variance. Many consider the proliferation of denominations as evidence that unity does not exist. Others, despising denominationalism, suppose that they can escape it by being independent. Independency is nothing more than single-church denominationalism. The issue, then, is whether this unity should take on visible form. Obviously, Christians must strive for visible unity, because the Lord of the Church prayed for a unity that the world could see. John 17.21 This does not, however, solve all the problems. What form should this unity take? Should denominations dissolve their boundaries and unite in a single administrative structure? Or should Christians simply cooperate across denominational lines without any formal union? Truth and Unity These are complex questions, and we do not provide a full treatment of them here. Rather, we simply wish to make several observations about the basis for Christian cooperation and unity. When the question of unity is raised, many conservative Christians immediately object that unity can only be on the basis of truth. We have no quarrel with this, but it is a distortion of the biblical position to set truth and unity in opposition to each other. The church is to be characterized by both, because it is both the pillar and ground of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, and the one body of Christ, Ephesians 4.4. We believe that it is sometimes necessary to break ties of cooperation and fellowship as when a church has become apostate. But this raises again the question of how to determine when a church is apostate. How can the church faithfully hold fast to the truth and still be unified in the faith? One important way to do this is to determine which doctrines are essential to the Christian faith. In one sense, of course, every doctrine of scripture is necessary, and distortion of one leads to a distortion of all. Yet the church has always recognized that some doctrines are closer to the core of biblical religion. Certain doctrines are obviously foundational. Thus, we can cooperate with those who profess the same essentials, while recognizing that there are many, often important, issues on which we may disagree and debate. This has been the vision of the church for centuries. In necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. In all things, charity. This does not mean that we ignore our differences, nor should we be indifferent to them. We should strive for unity in all doctrine, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians 4.13. In the meantime, though, we should not break fellowship with other Christians over non-essentials. By what standard? But again, we must raise the practical question, what standard do we use to determine what doctrines are essential to the Christian faith? Historically, the boundaries of Orthodox teaching have been established by the Christian creeds. Historian J. N. D. Kelly notes that the creeds were formulated by church councils in the 4th century were tests of the orthodoxy of Christians in general and touchstones by which the doctrines of church teachers and leaders might be certified as correct. This is true ecumenism, which one author notes is defined in some dictionaries as the doctrine or theology of the ecumenical councils. Today, many churches claim to be creedless, but in fact, every church, whether it admits it or not, has a creed. As John Frame writes, If we have the Bible, why do we need a creed? That's a good question. Why can't we just be Christians rather than Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and Episcopalians? Well, I wish we could be. When people ask what I am, I would like to say quite simply, Christian. Indeed, I often do. And when they ask what I believe, 
I would like to say with equal simplicity, the Bible. Unfortunately, however, that is not enough to meet the current need. The trouble is that many people who call themselves Christians don't deserve the name, and many of them claim to believe the Bible. We must tell people what we believe. Once we do that, we have a creed. Indeed, a creed is quite inescapable. Though some people talk as if they could have only the Bible or no creed but Christ, as we have seen, believing the Bible involves applying it. If you cannot put the Bible into your own words and actions, your knowledge of it is no better than a parrot's. But once you do put it down into your own words, and it is immaterial whether those words be written or spoken, you have a creed. A creedless faith opens the door to all types of theological aberrations, and the unwelcome necessity of books like The Seduction of Christianity and Beyond Seduction. Why should we be surprised when we find heretical doctrines littering the theological roadside? In the attempt to abandon the creeds, we have opened Pandora's box and let loose a whole host of false doctrines. The issue, therefore, is not creed or no creed, but which creed. A call to return to biblical doctrine must take its cue from the creeds. We should not call our contemporaries to line up with our particular brand of Christian doctrine. Rather, we all, from Dave Hunt to the Positive Confession Movement to Kingdom Now teachers to Reconstructionists, must line up with what the Church has historically believed and taught concerning the Orthodox faith, as the Spirit has led the Church through the centuries. This is neither because the Church is infallible, nor that the creeds and confessions are substitutes for Scripture, or even equal with Scripture. Rather, it is because the creeds deal with issues that are central to the Christian faith. If an article of the creed is denied, the foundations of the faith are destroyed. Practically, the creeds have dealt with the doctrines of God and of Christ, in other words, those teachings on which the Christian faith stands or falls. Background to the Creeds and Confessions Some of the disciples were put to death because they believed certain truths over against the prevailing views of the day. For example, Acts 7, 54-60. These truths were based on what had been seen and heard, Acts 4.20. The Apostle Paul calls the basic tenets of the Christian faith trustworthy or faithful sayings. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. Each time Paul stood before a civil official, he would confess what he believed, Acts 22-26. through 26. The apostle was often sneered at because of his creed, for example, Acts 17.32. His confession consisted of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. He followed the example of Jesus, who testified the good confession, 1 Timothy 6.13. The Latin word credo, from which we get the word creed, means simply, I believe. But what are creeds? How did they develop? And what help can they be for the church today? There is always a desire to distill and systematize the faith, to make it easy to communicate to others. This systematizing usually revolves around what the Bible says about God, Jesus, man, sin, death, and judgment. The doctrine of the millennium is also very important, but as we shall see, it has never been made a test of orthodoxy, a test governing access to baptism and the Lord's Supper by the historic church. While the doctrine of time, eschatology, is certainly important, the church has not been able to settle on a single position. Confession and Creed The good confession of the new creature in Christ centers on what it means to be a Christian. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Romans 10, 9-10 There is no sharp distinction here between confession and belief. A person cannot truly confess what he or she does not believe. The church was immediately hit with contrary creeds. For some, the gospel of grace was not enough. Good works had to be added to the sacrificial death of Christ. The Apostle Paul was amazed that the Galatians were so quickly deserting him who called them by the grace of Christ. Galatians 1.6 It was a different gospel that in reality was no gospel. Paul then proceeds in his letter to the Galatians to outline once again the basics of the gospel message, reminding them that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. 2.21 Justification by grace through faith was a test of one's orthodoxy. You cannot claim the name of Christ and deny justification by the grace of God. A denial of it meant the repudiation of the faith. Not even an angel from heaven has any authority to preach and thus alter the gospel message. 1.8 Paul's disciples at Galatia were not alone in their confusion of what the Christian message was all about. All those who claim Christ should be aware of false doctrine. The Apostle Paul warns the church with these words. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. 1 John 4, 1-3 So then, a creedless Christianity will not do. In fact, a creedless Christianity is a contradiction, an impossibility. There must be a constant appraisal of what the Bible teaches about itself and about what it means to be a Christian. We are to test everything by the standard of truth. Confessions and creeds are expressions of unity, demonstrations of a common faith that help the church gather around the truth and fight against error. What a person professes to believe about Jesus Christ separates him from all competing faiths. Without a creed, there is no difference between belief and unbelief, saved and lost, truth and error, and salvation and damnation. A creedless church is no church at all, since it has nothing to distinguish it from the rest of what the world believes. Church historian Philip Schaff writes that the Christian church has never been without a creed, for it has never been without confession of faith in Christ. There has never been a time in which church members were not required to say, Credo. I believe. There would have been creeds even if there had been no doctrinal controversies. In a certain sense, it may be said that the Christian church has never been without a creed. Ecclesia sine symbolis nulla. The baptismal formula, Matthew 28, 19-20, and the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, 23-34, compare 15, 1-8, are creeds. These and the confession of Peter, Matthew 16, 16, antedate even the birth of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost. The church is, indeed, not founded on symbols, but on Christ, not on any words of man, but on the word of God. Yet it is founded on Christ as confessed by men. And a creed is man's answer to Christ's question, man's acceptance and interpretation of God's word. Councils and Creeds 
the early church encountered doctrinal controversy that was broader than its battle with apostate Judaism. The Judaizers were dealt with through letters and councils which clarified doctrinal controversies for the first century church, Acts 15, 1-35. As the church extended its boundaries throughout the pagan world, it faced additional challenges to the faith that had to be answered. The Pharisees questioned Jesus' claim that he was the promised Messiah. Here we find the seeds of controversy that were settled in a number of very important creedal formulations. How could God become man? Were the natures of Jesus mixed? Were there two natures present within the one person? Christians in AD 325 met in what has been called the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea to settle the question raised by the Arians. Was Jesus really God, or was he a creature, albeit the greatest of God's created beings? The Nicene Creed stated emphatically that Jesus was very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. But there were still questions and disputes. The Council of Constantinople assembled in AD 381 to take up the question of Jesus's complete humanity. At this council, the true, complete humanity of Jesus was maintained over against Apollinarius of Laodicea, who insisted that Jesus was God but denied that he was also man. But the issue of the relationship between Jesus' divinity and humanity was still not solved. Nestorianism maintained that the divine and human natures in Christ constitute two persons. This was condemned by the Creed of the Council of Ephesus in AD 431. The opposite heretical belief was Eutychianism, which insisted that the divine and human natures are so united in Christ that they form but one nature. This was condemned by the Council of Chalcedon, AD 451. The conclusion of these debates resulted in the belief that Jesus has two natures in one person. Orthodoxy was measured by these creedal formulations. The Orthodox churches have unified around these essential beliefs about the person and work of Jesus Christ for centuries. Little confusion would have arisen in the church today if the creeds had only been read and studied. The all-important doctrines of the Trinity and Christology, the study of the person and work of Christ, were hammered out and settled long ago. What we are encountering today is nothing new. The same errors have resurfaced. Christians need a good dose of theology in every generation to equip them to fight against every wind of doctrine that seems to blow every which way. Danger, going beyond the creeds. Hunt is, from what we can tell from his books, an entirely orthodox Christian. He does not deny any article of the historic creeds. We object, however, to his tendency to test orthodoxy by something more than the creeds demand. We believe that Hunt is generally calling for a return to a sound biblical Christianity. But in the area of eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, he implies that in order to be orthodox, Christians must subscribe to a particular millennial position. He recognizes that many Christians are turning from the traditional fundamentalist eschatology. He claims that the views of many Christians concerning the future of the world are beginning to have more and more in common with the humanistic hope that mankind can really find itself. He fails to inform his readers that many Christians are returning to a biblically-based, historically-held belief that the kingdom of God operates in the world and that Christians are to live in terms of its ethical requirements. Matthew 6.33 Mr. Hunt rejects both the optimistic socialism of the evangelical left and the optimistic prosperity gospel of many charismatics. 
From their increasingly isolated corner, the fundamentalists warn that neither will succeed because the world is heading for a great tribulation climaxing in the Battle of Armageddon, which will involve the return of Christ to rescue Israel, to stop the destruction, and to set up his kingdom. Whether it appeals to our generation or not, the fact remains that the Bible does predict in unequivocal language great judgment from God coming upon planet Earth and gives us the reasons for this judgment. Mr. Hunt believes that this change in eschatology indicates that the great delusion is just around the corner. In fact, Hunt and McMahon explicitly equate the New Age movement with the great delusion that they believe will occur near the end of the world. What is happening seems to fit the very pattern prophesied for the period of time just before the return of Christ for his own. It is difficult to say how important these eschatological views are to Hunt's argument. Some reviewers have suggested that Hunt's entire diagnosis of New Age seduction is based on his eschatology. It may or may not be that the great delusion is upon us, but there are major problems with the way Hunt and McMahon approach this. First, because the field of end-time study is filled with controversy among orthodox interpreters. To assume that all Christians should agree with Hunt and McMahon, pre-tribulational dispensational eschatology is unwarranted. Seduction's eschatological presentation is simplistic to the point of error. A majority of biblical Christians throughout history have held different views of the end times than the view represented in seduction. Hunt and McMahon have centered their whole argument around a view, pre-tribulational dispensationalism, which, in spite of its present popularity, had no real place in church eschatology for almost 18 and a half centuries. In other words, these reviewers think that Hunt's books are basically premillennial tracts on the order of Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth and Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. His eschatology gets in the way of objective evaluation. On the other hand, it is possible that Hunt is only secondarily concerned with eschatology. His second book, Beyond Seduction, in fact has little to say about the great delusion and the end of the world. The emphasis on the second book is on heaven as the ultimate hope for Christians. Perhaps Hunt is simply calling Christians back to creedal orthodoxy, and his preoccupation with the end of the world is secondary to this aim. If this is the case, we have little quarrel with his diagnosis of the New Age movement, or of aberrant teachings in the church. Regardless of whether eschatology is intended to be a primary or secondary theme in Mr. Hunt's analysis, we believe that his eschatology does affect his understanding of the current state of the church, and it plays an especially important role in his reaction to other eschatological positions. By making his premillennial and dispensational eschatology an important part of his analysis, Hunt has, perhaps unintentionally, made eschatology an implicit test of orthodoxy. He implies that anyone who adopts an optimistic eschatology is moving toward a humanistic view of the future. Creeds and Eschatology It is important to recognize that the historic creeds of the Church do not include anything about the millennium, the rapture, the Antichrist, or the Great Tribulation. The creeds mention individual eschatology, such as the resurrection of the body and everlasting life. They also say that Christ will return again in judgment. Yet as far as the creeds are concerned, the timing of Christ's second coming is a matter of doctrinal freedom. The creeds did not bind any believer to a particular millennial position. Harold O. J. Brown observes, 
The orthodox doctrine of the person and natures of Jesus Christ is one on which there has been a very large degree of agreement throughout the Christian world for more than 15 centuries. The doctrine of the return of Christ, called eschatology, or the doctrine of the last things, by contrast, is one on which Christians have never come to substantial agreement. Orthodox believers all recognize that the scripture teaches and the creeds affirm that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead. But the time of his coming and the signs that are to precede it have been interpreted in several different ways. Through the centuries, there have been any number of premature alarms. Throughout history, there have been differences of opinion on the meaning of the millennium. Even more detailed confessions such as the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms, which have been the doctrinal standards of the Presbyterian churches, avoid binding statements on the precise details of eschatology. Up to the present time, the doctrine of the millennium has never yet been embodied in a single confession, and therefore cannot be regarded as dogma of the church. If we use creeds to mark the boundary between orthodoxy and heresy, as the church has always done, we have no basis for making one's millennial view a test of his orthodoxy. And if we don't use the creeds, what shall we use? Creeds are not infallible because they were written by fallible men. Thus we can and should reform the creeds as necessary or write new ones. Until that time, we must depend on existing creeds. One of the purposes of this book is to show that the eschatological views that Mr. Hunt criticizes are well within the bounds of historic orthodoxy. One's millennial position is important, but we should not say that those who disagree with us are heretical. Conclusion Since the turn of the century, Christians have looked for ways to identify other Orthodox Christians. Prior to this time, creeds and confessions did the job. With the rise of denominationalism, a divided institutional body of Christ, and the proliferation of divergent unorthodox doctrines, the Church has worked to unify under some doctrinal standard. An attempt was made to articulate the fundamentals of the Christian faith with the publication of 12 volumes called The Fundamentals, 1910-15. through 15. But with divergent organizational ties, there still was no way to initiate a single expression of Christian orthodoxy. Today, with neglect of the creeds and historic confessions, individual Christians have been drawing the lines of Christian orthodoxy on their own. It's been fashionable to despise church tradition because it tends to be absolutized by some. But this real potential for abuse should not stop the Church of Jesus Christ from drawing on the experiences and wisdom of our Christian brethren of past generations. Can we honestly say that we are any wiser?